you that we're able to gather once again as a family, as a body in your name. We ask that you would forgive us our sins, the trespasses that we have committed against you. We ask that we would know this truth, that we would know this forgiveness, we would abide in it, we would rejoice and be grateful for it. Father, we ask that you would help us to hear your voice, your word this morning as we come to it, as we seek wisdom, as we seek to be edified, sanctified, and equipped so that we can glorify you in all that we do. We ask that you would help us not to be distracted, not to be blinded by the anxieties or the pleasures of this life, but that we would know and see your glory as well and as far as we may in this life, Father. So, Father, be with us this morning. May your spirit convict and encourage as necessary. We ask this in the name of your Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I've been in the process of cutting down a maple tree in our backyard, and at first it seemed like an easy gig, an easy thing to do. All I had to do was get a pole saw and cut it down to size, and I got a pole saw, and so I went out there, started cutting it down to size, but then I realized there's some branches I, I can't reach from the ground with the pole saw, so I had to get a ladder. But then I realized, well, you know, the tree is within... 10 feet of the shared fence and 15 feet of the house, and it's like a 30, 40 foot uh, maple tree. And so it's not quite so simple. Now, it, it might be, may, maybe if I just went ahead and cut, everything would work out, but I don't know. That's the problem. I don't have the assurance. I don't have confidence to cut it down. I, I think that if I cut this tree branch too far down, it won't fall the way that I think it will fall. Because oftentimes when we cut branches or trees down, they don't fall the way that you think they will or ought to. There are things that you need to account for, and I don't have the experience for that. Now, if I had an extra set of eyes, another person to judge my decision-making or to assess the distance or to help the ladder not tip over or to catch me or at least break my fall, if I were to fall off the ladder as I try to escape the massive tree branch or whatever it may be, if I had just one more person to assure me, to give me that confidence, then the job would be done. And you know that's not unlike our faith, right? We start out our faith well, but we come to moments and situations when we pause. We wonder, am I doing this right? What happens if I am not doing this right? Am I misreading this? Am I sure about my situation, about my footing? Am, is, this, is this the right process? Is the work that I am doing, is it the right kind of work or am I essentially wasting my time? See, we could use another set of eyes in our lives, in our walk with Christ. Others who can affirm, who can correct us, catch us when we fall, help us to get up when we stumble. Because if we have full assurance, full confidence of what we are doing, then our hesitations and fears will be handled. And if that's the case, then cutting down the tree all of a sudden becomes an easy task. If it, when we know it's all good, it's all safe, and there's nothing to be lost, we can have at it. But when there's fear and when there's doubt, we slow down, and maybe the job, the task, it never gets accomplished. So after the passage that we covered last week, perhaps you were left wondering, well, how do I know where I stand? How do I know that I'm not wasting my time and energy with my faith, with the body of Christ, with my life? Where is my assurance where is my confidence? Well, the author anticipates that question for us and helps us in understanding how our assurance of salvation works. And this puts us at the conclusion of the third warning of Hebrews. 
We've already covered the shaming of the author's audience that the author does in 5.11 through 6.3 two weeks ago. Last week, we trudged faithfully through 6.4 through 8, which was the illustration the author used uh, showing the danger of being lazy in our hearing. Now we come to the final portion of this warning, which is unlike the first two portions, as the author now changes his tone and he encourages his audience. And he does so without causing us readers in the 21st century exegetical heartburn and trying to understand the full meaning of the text. Now, if you haven't already, please open to Hebrews 6, 9 through 12. If you need a Bible, we have a few Bibles underneath the seats around you. Now, in this warm conclusion, we will see the author encouraging his people to persevere in living for the name of God. For in doing so, assurance is known and the promises of Scripture are given to such people. After we read our passage, we'll break the Arthur's, Arthur's arguments into three sections. We'll start with the idea that assurance of hope comes from service or activity. Then we'll consider the motivation of that service, of that activity, and we'll close by talking about the marks of that service. So let's go ahead and read Hebrews 6, 9, and we will read through verse 12. You can also follow along on the screen above me as well. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So if you recall, or if you simply look back to verses 4 through 8 of chapter 6, the author there in his illustration used the third person plural. Well, now he switches back to the first and second person plural. And this is indicating for us that the illustration was not a direct application to the people he was writing. Beyond that, he explicitly states here in our passage that the illustration of 4 through 8 does not currently apply by saying, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. We are, better yet in the Greek, we are persuaded, we are convinced of better things for you. And what things is he convinced of? Well, things that belong to salvation, things that uh, accompany salvation, that is, things and matters that pertain to those who are saved. Thus he is saying, look, unlike the those, the ones, the third person plural of the illustration, who have fallen away and cannot be restored, that's not you. Not yet. So keep at it. The author, he switches his tone here to a more affirming and encouraging one for the sake of his audience. And you'll notice this with a key word that he uses. Beloved or, or dear friends. It's the only time that he speaks of the audience in this way in the entire letter. It's the one time that he expresses his sentiment towards them as dear friends or as beloved. Because right now, after this warning, after three of them, he wants to affirm their confidence. He wants to speak to their hearts, and he wants them to be assured of their faith. It's why the whole letter is being written. And why is the author, why is he confident, why is he convinced of better things for them? Well, look at verse 10. God is not unjust. Right. Think of Deuteronomy 32.4 where Moses writes, The rock, and he's not talking about Dwayne Johnson here, The rock, his work is perfect. 
For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. See, in matters of judgment, in matters of salvation, God is fair and just. He's not neglectful. He's not partial. Uh, partial. He is not forgetful. He knows all things. He will not overlook you. He will not miss anything about you that he needs to know for judgment and for your salvation. Therefore, keep at it. Look at verse 11. This is the desire of the author and his company, whoever the we includes, that his audience maintain their level of earnestness so that they would have the full assurance of hope until the end. Well, what is this full assurance of hope? Well, this full assurance of hope is the confidence of which the author speaks of in a variety of ways, in a variety of places throughout the letter. In Hebrews 3, 6, this is the confidence that if we hold fast to and our boasting and our hope that we have, the confidence is that we, we are part of his house. In Hebrews 3.14, he writes, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 10.19, therefore, brother, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So here in 6.11, to have this full assurance of hope to the end is to know that we have this confidence that he speaks of elsewhere, that we have this trust to go before God in time of need, that we will share in the blessings of Christ and that we can enter into the holy places, not by our works, not by anything that we have done, but by the blood of Christ. The author wants us to be assured that we know that we have this confidence. And as such, that leads us to and it enables us to be faithful in this life, which ultimately also leads to peace and joy in this life, even in the midst of sufferings and tribulations. Such blessings like these are things that belong to salvation. These are things that accompany those who are saved. So the author wants us and his audience to know this, to experience this. But how does one attain this? How does one come to know that they have this assurance of hope, that they have this confidence. Well, it's, look back at verse 11. Oh, excuse me. What exactly are the people of, of, the, of Hebrews called to continue doing in earnest? Look back at verse 10 and look at what the author states that God won't overlook. It's labor and love that leads to full assurance of hope. But it's not just any kind of labor. It's not just any kind of love. Right? It's not good enough to be a hard-working man or hard-working woman who keeps to their business. It's not enough to simply love without discernment or truth. It's not good enough to be a good, solid American who is a good capitalist and believes in the Constitution and, and, and freedom for all and all that stuff. That's not what the author is talking about here. The kind of labor and love that leads to a full assurance of hope is a service of love for the church a labor, an activity in love given to the body of Christ. If you want assurance in this life, if you want peace concerning where you stand before God, peace and joy knowing about your relating to your salvation, you must be active towards the church, or as the author puts it, towards the saints. So let us examine this service of labor and love more closely. And let's begin by considering the motivation of this labor of love. This service of 
love and labor is motivated for his name, right? It's right there in the middle of verse 10. Work in love that you have shown for his name, for his sake. This activity that these people are caught up in was not done for their own benefit. It wasn't even done for the benefit of those they are serving or those that they are ministering to. Primarily, it was done for the sake of God, for the name of God. That is for his glory, for his love, for his reputation, for the witness of Christ. Later in Hebrews 10, 32, 34, the author describes some of their works and deeds that he's probably referencing here. He writes, recall the former, former days when after you were enlightened, after they were saved, you endured a hard struggle of sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who were treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And then again in Hebrews 13, 1-3, the author writes, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Now, of course, the work and love that the author is talking about here in chapter 6, it's not restricted to what is described later, but of course, it certainly includes what is described later. The restriction of the work and love that the author is talking about here in chapter 6, that restriction comes at the end of verse 10, with the phrase, serving the saints, a work in love for a particular people. Not just anyone, not just for your neighbor, not just for some stranger on the street, but it is for the saints. And when we speak of saints, we're not talking about people who do miracles, as the Roman Catholic Church uh, points people as saints. We're talking about the holy ones, those who belong to God. And again, I know the world likes to make us think that everyone's a child of God and everyone belongs to God. No, not everyone belongs to God, and not everyone is a saint. Only those who trust in Christ and abide in Christ, those who have been washed by his blood, those who have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them right now, they are the saints. They are the ones who are children of God. They are the ones who belong to him. And it is to them that this work, that this love is to be given. These two verses, 10 and 11, essentially sum up John's teaching in his first epistle about how we are to know that we are his, how we are to know that we have eternal life. Listen, 1 John 5, 13, John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He writes these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, what are some of the things that he wrote? Well, 1 John 3, 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So right there, we see God telling us we have those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is, is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And again, this brother, this term for brother, it is not just your brother on the street. It's, it's not your kin. It is the brother in Christ. It's the sister in Christ. It's the one who is part of the body of Christ. First John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. First John 4, 20, 21, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, 
Whoever loves God must love his brother. See, love is not just a feeling. Right? Hollywood like, would like us to think that love is this feeling that takes you captive and, and, and you're going to obey it because it's just, you feel it's a natural thing. But that's not what Scripture teaches. Feelings certainly accompany love, but love is a choice. It is an action. It's not mere feeling. Otherwise, God wouldn't say God, uh, whoever loves God must also love. Like there is an action there. There's a command there to love somebody. That is a choice, especially in the long run, and we'll talk more about that later. And then, of course, we have John 13, 35, Upper Room Discourse, the night that Jesus is betrayed. Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Again, that love for one another is not just for anyone. Oh, well, that, that's my neighbor down the street. No, it's not. It's not your neighbor down the street. Unless they're part of the body of Christ, it's not that you're not called to love them, but specifically you're called to love your brothers and sisters in Christ first, primary. They are your focus. Those who do not believe are not your focus. Some of you ask, well, how are we to evangelize our communities? How are we to witness? How are we to love them? Well, the number one way you do it is the way that has been ordained by God. It's the way that's described in verse 10 here in chapter 6, as it's described in John 13, 35. By loving one another. That's how the world's going to know. By being actively involved in loving the church. By holding fast to the confidence you have in God and knowing that you have it. Knowing this full assurance of hope. See, if you don't know you ha- if, that you have it, then they won't know what it is that you claim to have, of which you yourself wonder, do I have it? They're not going to see the appeal of that. You're not certain of your faith. You're not really committed to it. You don't love the church. But when you do love the church and you have that assurance, then they're going to start to wonder. I want the peace that you have. I want the confidence that you have. I want the joy that you have. You talk about church all the time. You're always doing things for the church. Why are you always hanging out with them? Why are you always fellowshipping with them? Think of the church in Acts 2, 42, 47. Day of Pentecost, just after they, uh, Peter gives his sermon, they're all converted. Uh, verses 42, 47 tell us the life, the practice of the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. All came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Notice where the miracles were being done through. The apostles, not, not everyone. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor of all people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. Consider the activity of the early church. The devotion that the church had towards, what, outsiders? No. It was towards itself. Now, they certainly weren't neglectful towards outsiders, right? We're not saying that. But they were focused focused on the body. They were focused on the teaching of the apostles. They were focused on God. And as such, because of that, they welcomed their family into their homes. They, They did life together, day by day, not just on Sundays, but all the time. And the community saw that. Outsiders saw that. And God added to their numbers. Now, by God's providential grace, 
you all have an excellent opportunity this Christmas season to live this out. With Christmas falling on Sunday and with us having a special fellowship meal following the service, what a better way to show your love for one another, for your eternal family, out of the love that you have for God, now the love God has shown you, than to spend that day with your family here. And bring your biological family, especially if they don't believe, so that they can come and see. Better yet, they can taste and see. Help show them and teach them that there is a name greater than the name you share with them. Yeah, your last name's great, but the name of Christ is greater. It is better. You share a, there's a blood that is greater than the blood that you share with them. I understand, you know, I have a close relationship with my non-believing brothers because of the blood and the name we share, but there's a greater blood that I share with Christ, and I wish that my brothers would come to know. A blood that's more precious than gold and silver that has purchased your life, my life, our souls, that has adopted us into an eternal family, that has given us everlasting life. The blood I share with my family does not grant me any of that, nor does my name. In fact, both of those are temporary, futile, vain. But the name and blood of Christ is forever and it is eternal. And so by including them and showing them that this name, this blood is greater, you also let them know that, hey, this is available to you. You too can share in this name. You too can share in this blood and this adoption and glory if you repent and believe in his name. Especially if you're one of those who want to put Christ back into Christmas, right? This is it. This is step one. If you want to put Christ back into Christmas, but you're unwilling to come to church on Christmas, something's backwards there. This is step one. If you want to put Christ back into Christmas, is to spend Christmas with your brothers and sisters in Christ. After all, if you won't do that, what will you do for the saints? What will you do for the sake of his name? Where then is your assurance? of hope. Now, of course, this ministering to the saints is not about one day. Let's make sure we're clear. This is not just about Sunday. Well, I did my Sunday duty. It's not just about Sunday. Now, Sunday is important. Sunday helps, leads us to a a full assurance of hope as it helps fuel how we live 24-7, right? Sundays fuel this love. Sundays spark this kind of work. And as a church, we exist in part to provide opportunities for a life of ministering together to happen. For example, we have life groups to create social and spiritual connections beyond Sunday pleasantries to help uh, provide for the needs of the body. We set up meal trains for those in need. We provide connections to missionaries so that you can minister to them through prayer, sacrificial giving, or at times in labor. We, we provide connections for organizations like Global Fingerprints so you can care for orphans and children across the world for the sake of his name so that they may know his name. And if you're not serving, if you're not connected, it's not for lack of opportunity. It's for lack of will and maybe even faith. If you want people in your life to come to a saving faith in Christ, you need to be a witness to them of the love that you know and the love you claim to have for your brothers and sisters. Think about it. The fact that you will joyfully come that you would joyfully come and serve those who may have different political views than you, that you would fellowship with them. They may have different views of wearing masks, different views regarding vaccines, 
that you might have different views of whether it's, it's right to homeschool, go to public school, go to Christian school, that you don't show partiality based on skin color, wealth, societal status, but you simply love and serve others for the sake of God's name, for his glory, for his reputation, so that he would be glorified. This is why the body of Christ exists. This is why we exist here, I hope. This is why we live the way we are called to live. It is for his sake. But it's not just to make his name known, but so that we ourselves may know his name, that we may know his glory, and that we may know him all the more. See, it is in the knowledge of the holy that the assurance itself comes from. It's knowledge of Christ that we get this assurance. Here, John 14, 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. I will make myself known. I will reveal myself to him. In other words, he will have knowledge of me. And if you do this, then you won't be the people of Matthew 7, 21. That at the end of days will go to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. If you obey John 14, 21, if you serve the church for the sake of his name so that you may know him more, then he will know you. And at the end of days, he will say, well done, good and faithful servants. So this is our motivation to serve and love one another. And this isn't for a season, right? This is for a life. This is why the author is writing. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, we are given the main reason of this warning as mentioned back in uh, 5.11. The author wants his audience, and God wants us, as he puts in verse 11 of our passage, to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Not until this season, but until the end. And why does he say that? Well, verse 12, so that, right? So that, it's a key, key phrase there, so that we may not be sluggish. See, you can't be earnest and sluggish at the same time. So the author closes by exhorting us to a service that is marked by patience and faith. A life of love and labor within the church. Right? That's a life. Not a season. Not until you have done your time or have paid your dues. Not only when one season of life has come and gone, but to do so now and to do it to the end. Don't be waiting for a season of life to end. Don't be thinking, well, once this season's over, then the next season I, I will be able to, to help the church. No, if you have an excuse now, you'll have an excuse then. And there's no guarantee that even tomorrow will come. If you want that assurance, you need to start now. Now, start small if need be, right? Some of you need to Perhaps rearrange your careers in order to make time to love the church. But you can start somewhere. You can greet. You can work in the nursery. You get connected to life group. Start somewhere and then grow from there. But how do we do this? Right, we were talking about, if you remember my illustration, I can cut down a tree. I can watch a whole bunch of YouTube videos. Think I know how to cut down the tree. Still not going to have that assurance. So how do we go about doing this? Well, the author goes on and says, be imitators, right? Don't be sluggish, but imitate. Well, who am I to imitate? The ones who through faith and endurance or patience inherit the promises. And then he's going to go on and we'll talk about uh, Abraham next week because Abraham's the prime example that he uses. 
And in doing so, he anticipates uh, the great chapter um, of the Hall of Faith in chapter 11 later in his letter. Now quickly, note what is inherited by those who endure with patience and in faith. The promises, right? Now did Abraham inherit those promises in this life? No. The blessing of heeding this warning, this third warning in Hebrews, again, is not about rewards in this life. That's why I don't think the illustration, the loss there, is not of rewards. Because here in verse 12, it's about eternal rewards. It's in the life to come. It's about the promises to be received upon entry into the celestial kingdom of our God. And if we want to inherit those promises, then we must live as they lived, faithfully, patiently. In other words, with endurance. See, that is what love is marked with. It's one thing to love your spouse for the honeymoon phase. It's another thing to love them for 20, 30, 40, 50, longer if the Lord blesses you. Because every day you got to choose to love them. When God tells us in the great commandment to love him and him alone with all our heart, mind, and strength, we have to choose. Initially, yeah, our soul, like it's on fire. We're grateful for what Christ has done, but life wears on us. Trials and tribulations come on us, and it becomes that decision of, no, he's the one. Yes, the world is tempting me of all these pleasures and delights, and my flesh would rather be satisfied by vanity, but I choose him and him alone. If I want to be faithful to my spouse, I choose. She is my devotion. There is no other one. She is it. So love then becomes a choice. It becomes one marked with patience and endurance because when those you love start to fail you, maybe even abuse you in a variety of ways, you get worn down, you get tired of how they talk to you, you get tired of how they load the dishwasher, you get tired of little things, big things. Do you keep, how do you keep loving them? With patience, faithfulness, endurance. You don't give up on them, just as God doesn't give up on us, right? He is faithful to the end. Likewise, we need to be faithful towards others. Now, the author, he speaks of imitation often in his letter. It's a key method that he refers to. So he gives us a plethora of examples to follow. In Hebrews 2.10, the author speaks of the pioneer or founder of our faith, and of course, it's Jesus Christ. He's the trailblazer. He's our first prime example. He is our paragon that we ought to imitate. But it's not just him, right? We are blessed to have others that we can imitate as well. Not only Abraham, as the author mentions here, but all the saints who have been faithful. Consider Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. This passage follows the great hall of faith. And, and so this is who he's talking about. He writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the hall of faith, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners, such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So when you wonder, why should I serve the church, especially after what the church has done to me, the pain the church has caused me, consider what Jesus endured to serve you, to save you. Consider him. What excuse do you really have? 
In chapters 11 and 12, the author speaks of the saints who have gone before, this great cloud of witnesses. And the key that makes them that great cloud of witnesses who helped them be faithful and endure to the end was they all looked to Jesus. And because they all looked to Jesus, when we look to them, they help us to understand how that looks in this life, how we are to put that into practice. And it encourages us knowing it's possible. We can do this to the end. Others have gone before us. Therefore, we are encouraged to run, our, to run our race faithfully, to look to Jesus in all things, not seeking rest, doing our best as we ascend this life, this hill of difficulty. We take moments of rest as needed, but we need to make sure that when we take a moment or a season of rest, that moment or season of rest does not lead to laziness, doesn't lead us to become slobs, but rather the rest is intended for us to be rejuvenated so that we can get back into the fight and we can get back at it. So we can rest for a moment in order that we may continue on serving the saints of God for his name. And if you're wondering, well, how, do I, how long do I know I should rest for, or if my rest is effective, or when it becomes laziness? Well, this is where like, life groups come into play. This is where being connected with the body of Christ comes into play. You can ask those questions. You can wrestle over those things. A brother or sister can be like, you know, I haven't seen you at church for a while, or I haven't seen you plugged in or, or serving. You said you're going you're to take some time off, but... It's, it's been a while. This is the accountability that we all need, that extra set of eyes. But beyond Jesus, beyond the saints of old, those who have gone before us, the author gives us other people that we can imitate. We have the local church, people today that we can follow. The author specifically names them as the elders of the church, Hebrews 13, 7. He writes, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is why church membership is important. If you went to a different church every week, well, who, you, who are your elders? Who are your leaders? Who are you to imitate? If, if, they're, if they're different every week and depending on their beliefs, especially in this day and age, in this culture, you're going you're gonna to be split personality. You're going to be confused. You're not going to know what you are or who you're supposed to be. So being committed to a church, you have elders that you know and that you can imitate, and you spend life with them, and you know how they live in their homes, outside of their homes, and you can imitate their faith. Now, of course, this, just, this isn't just for the elders who currently hold the office, but those who serve the church through love and serve the church as elders, mature men of the faith. They meet all the qualifications just because they don't hold the office does not mean they're not qualified to be an elder or considered an elder or treated as an elder. So look to the one who is mature in faith, models the life of Christ as taught in the scriptures. Look to them, imitate them, be discipled by them. And again, if the church has hurt you, if the church has wounded you, do not allow that to rob you of the assurance that is promised to those who love and serve the church. If I were to expose my backside to you, you would see marks that the church has left in my life. And I know it's not an easy thing, but you need to remember the church is full of fallible people, broken people, sinners. But it's also full of many people who have been redeemed and know Christ. And the church doesn't always get it right, but we follow the one who has gotten it right. And again, we do it for his name, not for the church. A day will come, if it's not here already, and if you have not yet experienced it, when you will question your faith. You will wonder, am I saved? 
Or is it worth it? Or am I doing, am I, if, if what I am doing, is this the right thing? Am I holding the right line? Am I drawing the line where it needs to be drawn? Or have I overstepped? Have I gone too far? Or maybe I haven't gone far enough. You won't know how the branch or the tree will fall. But it will fall sooner or later. Trials and tribulations, some type of difficulty will come suddenly upon your life. It will to every one of us. It doesn't matter how beautiful and comfortable your life has been to this point. Sooner or later, the storm will come, either to your life or to those to whom you love. And that is not the time that you want to find assurance. That is not the time to be asking the questions, well, am I saved? How do I know? You need to know before you go into those moments. You need to have confidence in God before you walk into the furnace of fire, or you will bow down and worship the false gods, like Abednego, Meshach, Shadrach. I, I messed that up, but that's, that's, you know who I'm talking about. If not, you can Google it. So you must prepare yourself for the storm before the storm comes. And that happens by serving the church, by living for God. So get that extra pair of eyes in your life and be an extra pair of eyes to others. In doing so, you'll find the assurance you need. You'll have the confidence you need to be faithful in all you do, to be faithful in what God calls you to do. And you will find it much easier to endure whatever hardships come your way if you do this, thus providing for you what is necessary to enter into his eternal kingdom. So let us be earnest in our labor and love towards one another for his name until the end. Not to earn favor with God, but because he has already shown us favor by the blood of his son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for your word this morning from your book. We ask that you would encourage and convict everyone here as needed. You know our hearts. You know our motives. You know our desires. You know our priorities in life. You know our schedules. Father, help us to order our life to a way that honors you, that glorifies you, that help us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, the ones whom you have purchased by your blood to be our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to find a way to love them as family, as they are. Help us to understand the reality of that, the truth of our adoption. The reality that we belong to this great eternal family. And that you have called us to love them. And in doing so, we provide witness of the work that you, your son has accomplished for us on the cross. Give us confidence in that truth. Help us to be faithful witnesses of the gospel to those who do not know you, especially to those who are part of our biological family. Help us to hold fast to the confidence that we have in Christ. Help us not to compromise or accommodate false beliefs or ideas that lead to damnation. But help us to proclaim your name in all that we do, both in word and deed, and love for the church, for the body. 
Father, I ask that you would grant rest to those who have, have been working faithfully, that those who have been enduring, those who have been striving to serve the church for the sake of your name, that you would continue to hold them up, that you continue to give them strength, that you would continue to make their life full of blessings and joy, and that they, they may enjoy the fruits of their labor. I ask that you would raise up people in this church who, who for one reason or another, have been hesitant to connect, to serve, to love, that you would compel them and that you would give them a desire of joy, a, a, a sense of joy to, to do this, to serve, that you would raise up leaders and that we would continue to make disciples of Christ here and that we would continue to reach the Cooley region for your glory, Father. Father, I, I ask this prayer for all the churches in this area that are faithful to your word, that are faithful to your name, that we all, despite where we go to church, that if we are faithful, that we would love one another and we would be there for one another. Father, we ask that you bless the elements before us, the bread and the cup, and as we come to the table, that we would be encouraged and reminded of the confidence that we do have based on the work that your son has accomplished on the cross, the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins and the, and the truth, the reality that he's coming back one day, Father, to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. So, Father, as we come up and to partake of the elements and sit down as one body, may it be a time of joy, may it be a time of perhaps even soul-searching for some, but may we who confess our sins, may we know the forgiveness that you offer and the forgiveness that you have given. And may we confidently go from here seeking to glorify you in all that we do, knowing that we have been redeemed by the blood of your Son. Father, we ask this for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So at this time, we'll go into, into a time of communion. If you are a brother or sister in Christ who's not walking,